Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces. With two wings they covered their feet. And with two they were flying, and they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. He said, Go and tell this people, Be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused. Make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Then I said, For how long, Lord? And he answered, Until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant, until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken. And though a tenth remains in the land, it will again be laid waste. But as the terebinth and oak leaves stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. Amen. Let me pray as we reflect on this passage. Uh, Dear Lord, as we come to your word now, I pray that my words might honour you, that we might understand your word clearly and hear the things you want us to hear. Amen. And today we're talking about God's judgment, uh, which is awkward for Christians and deeply offensive uh, to everyone else. Uh, Because for many, uh, we're questioning whether God is really fair And at the same time, we feel entitled to good things. So we've kind of flipped the narrative where the accused have become the accusers. And so we now feel that God needs to justify his behaviour to us. And if God measures up to our expectations, then we might consider how God might play a part in our lives, and we feel there's a quite a few things that he might be able to improve. Uh, so there's still a recognition of God's power, uh, but not necessarily his authority or his goodness. And it's easy uh, for us to point our fingers at other people, but I suspect at least some of that attitude creeps into our own behaviour, where we diminish the seriousness of our sin and we feel entitled to God's grace. 
And so I hope today uh, helps us align or realign some of those attitudes and to bring us back to a place of humility and thankfulness. Uh, Last week, uh, we focused on the Lord's discipline. So Judah have turned their back on God and God has disciplined his people, but they refuse to listen. So we read, why should you be beaten anymore? Why do you persist in rebellion? And then a bit later, wash and make yourself clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. And then near the end of the passage, the choice before them. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the good things of the land. But if you resist and rebel, you'll be devoured by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And then tragically, despite all of the warnings, uh, they choose to resist and rebel. And so today we're going to focus not so much on God's discipline of Judah, but his judgment. And to get a sense of that journey, you know, we read that passage from Isaiah 5, where he tells the story of the one I love, who has a vineyard on a, a fertile hillside, and he painstakingly you know, clears it of the rocks, and he plants the choicest vines, and he builds a, a tower to protect it, but it only yields bad fruit. And so the one I love will bring judgment. Now I will tell you what I am going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge and it will be destroyed. I'll break down its wall and it will be trampled. And the story concludes with this damning charge. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel and the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. And he looked for justice but saw bloodshed, for righteousness but heard cries of distress. And so even with all the warnings that God has given Judah, uh, Judah is still defiant. They don't regret their sin and the terrible things that are happening around them, they don't see as God's discipline. And despite all the overwhelming evidence of history, they do not believe that God will hold them accountable. And so their arrogance is is almost breathtakingly delusional. So a little bit later in that passage that we read from Isaiah 5, they say, let God hurry, let him hasten his work so that we may see it. The plan of the Holy One of Israel, let it approach, let it come into view so that we might know it. Come on, Lord, show me what you've got. And he does. God loves his people. He has blessed his people, he's warned his people, he's he's disciplined his people, but they refuse to listen. And so now he will bring judgment. So God has laid out his case against Judah, and now we see Isaiah's role in proclaiming the verdict. You know, as we read uh, this chapter in Isaiah, he describes a scene that's sort of equal parts awe-inspiring and terrifying. Uh, The Lord sits on his throne in the temple, which represents God's presence, is struggling to even sort of contain the hem of his robe. Uh, Perhaps a more relatable image for us, we're not really into temples these days, but perhaps, you know, the image of creation. This is one of those images from the new James Webb telescope. It's kind of the, the Hubble telescope, you know, successor. But as you look at that, as you look at the enormity of the universe, as you look at the intricacy and the beauty, we get a sense of God's size and power. 
that he set all of this in motion. And the God who has done all of that sits on the throne and that God knows and sees us. And then to add to this image from Isaiah, there are these creatures who are pretty impressive in their own right, but they humble themselves before God. They cover their faces and their feet because they're unworthy to be in his presence. And they proclaim the glory of God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Holy means to be set apart, but it also captures a sense of perfection. And as Isaiah looks on all of this, he is terrified. If feet are unworthy to be in the presence of God, then what about him, a sinner? Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips. And I lived amongst a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Have you ever been in the situation where you're driving along and you drive you know, past a police car or you get pulled over for an RBT and you have this instant sort of feeling of guilt? You know, you haven't even been drinking, you're not speeding, but you're pretty sure you've done something wrong and you're pretty sure you're about to get busted. And so, yeah, the heart rate sort of elevates a bit, you know, you start to go through this sort of moment of panic, get a bit clammy in the hands. Now, that's just simply a, a police car when you're innocent, okay? Imagine what it would be like to stand before God where we really are actually guilty, where there are no excuses, no one else to blame. It's just us and our sin laid bare. That is a terrifying thought. Yeah, that is Isaiah in this moment. It's a very different reaction to Judah, to let God hurry, let him hasten his work so that we might see it. And that's kind of the reaction of our culture, isn't it? Yeah, where is God? What's God doing? Does God see? Does God care? And in this moment of time, Isaiah sees his guilt, but we also see this wonderful picture of mercy. You know, one of these seraphim put a hot coal to his lips. And it's not about punishing. There's not a sense of pain. It's a sense of cleansing. God is purging this sin. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin atoned for. So atonement means to make things right. And normally when we get it wrong, we're the ones responsible for making things right. Uh, for me, perhaps one of the more, you know, uh, poignant examples of atonement uh, was my first car, uh, which was a about 1984 Tirana uh, automatic uh, four-cylinder. It was one supposed to sound cool, it's not. It was beige, and, and that was really summing up the entire car. Uh, but anyway, one time I was, I was driving home and uh, I, I pull up to a stop sign and there's a car in front of me. He goes, I think he's gone. I go and I run straight up the back of this Mercedes-Benz. And, um, and then I, I learned this really, really good lesson about insurance. Okay, And it turns out that if you're not insured uh, and you have a car accident, then you have to pay for the other person's car. And as a young bloke... Um, that was a really painful lesson. Uh, so I've, I'm a student at the time. I, I've got about $12.50 in the bank. And, uh, and so sure enough, uh, for the next year, I'm paying off each week uh, this you know, 
uh, accident for this car. And, uh, yeah, that's atonement. Uh, I've done the wrong thing and I am paying the price. But when it comes to our sin, uh, there is nothing we can do to make things right. You know, right back in Genesis 2, God warns, if you sin, you will die. Uh, the Apostle Paul says something similar where he says, for the wages of sin is death. So no amount of good work is going to pay off the debt of sin. Uh, but God is willing to pay that price for us. God will pay Isaiah's debt. And he does it through his son. So Isaiah is you know, literally hundreds of years before Jesus. But Jesus will pay the price for that sin. So Paul again expresses it like this in Romans. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. And so Isaiah recognises his sin. He recognises God's right to rule his creation and he receives mercy. Uh, Judah, on the other hand, given the same opportunity, but they refuse to accept it. They love their sin and they refuse to turn from it. And some things never change, do they? Again, as a culture, we celebrate evil as good and we self-righteously declare good evil. So we proudly defy God and we think we're taking control you know, in our lives, that it's all about us and we have the right to determine our own destiny. But God created us and God has called us to recognise him. And the sky hasn't fallen on our heads so far. So we conclude that either God is pleased or God is unwilling to act. But in reality, we are misreading the signs. Uh, God's lack of response is not about not caring, it's about his patience and his desire to see everyone come back to a point of repentance and to turn back to him. Uh, it's an act of mercy, but just like Judah, a time will come when we will be held accountable. And so we can go one of two ways. We can go the way of Isaiah, uh, we can recognise our sin, repent and submit to God, or we can try our hand and follow the example of Judah. Uh, but that example is not going to end well. Uh, God has given Israel everything she needed to thrive. She warned them about what would happen. He has begged them to come back to him, but they have refused. And so now God has another message for Judah through Isaiah. And so Isaiah volunteers to be the messenger, although perhaps he should have waited a moment longer uh, to hear the message, because if there was ever a shoot-the-messenger kind of message, uh, this is it. It's not a message of hope. It's not a message of turn and be saved. It's a message of inevitable judgment. Be ever hearing but never understanding. Be ever seeing but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused. Make their eyes dull and close their eyes. Ears dull, sorry. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. So as Isaiah proclaims God's word to Judah, it won't lead to repentance. It's just going to reinforce their guilt. 
Uh, when I was younger, about the same time I had my Tirana, actually, uh, I was working briefly as a landscaper, uh, which was awesome. Uh, you know, one day I'm planting a garden, next I'm sort of laying a lawn. Uh, my favourite uh, was laying a brick driveway, and it was just sort of a frenzy of bricks getting thrown everywhere. You've got people throwing, people catching, people laying. Uh, I'm not quite sure how we all survived, but it was just awesome. Uh, but one of the things, uh, you know, when you're doing that kind of work, it doesn't take very long for very sort of soft, you know, year 12 hands uh, to become calloused. And so what is, you know painful on day one, just becomes normal and unnoticed, you know, by the time you've been there for a couple of weeks. And that's exactly what is happening for Judah. As the saying goes, you know, familiarity breeds contempt. They will hear the same message so many times that it loses a sense of reality and urgency, and their hardness will simply reinforce what they've already shown to be true. Uh, they do not love God, they do not love his commands, they do not love their neighbour, and they do not have any desire to turn from their sin. So why does Isaiah bother preaching a word of repentance if they've already locked in judgment? And I think there's at least three reasons. Uh, The first is a little bit speculative, but uh, it's not uncommon for a prophet to declare an inevitable outcome but for God to then relent when the people recognise the sin and turn back to God. And so an example of that would be the prophet Jonah. So we're doing Jonah at Cross Life Kids at the moment. Uh, Jonah, who's most famous for getting swallowed by a fish, uh, is sent uh, after a few little detours to the city of Nineveh. And he, he stands up and he declares this city will be destroyed in 40 days. Uh, There was no call for repentance. The message was simply, you are inevitably and imminently going to be destroyed. Uh, But they hear that message and they do repent and God does show mercy. Now, of course, we know that ending because uh, we've read the whole story. And we know that Judah won't turn, but certainly there's at least a possibility Uh, The second, and and this is closer to home, it compounds the guilt of the guilty. God doesn't just warn them of their sin. He warns them about how they will respond to his warning about their sin, and they still refuse to listen. So no one likes the idea of judgment, but no one in Judah can plead ignorance. They've heard it time and time again. And I think number three is it serves as an encouragement and as a warning to future generations. Uh, God does still love his people. God is willing to forgive and restore, but God is also just, and he will not be patient forever. So if we are not drawn to God for his goodness and for his mercy and grace, then at least fear his judgment. Tragically, of course, we know that Judah don't listen. Uh, As we read Isaiah, we see moments of repentance, these moments of hope and obedience, but nothing ends up changing the course of what God has declared. And so Isaiah asks, for how long, Lord? And he answered, until the city lies ruined and without inhabitant, until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken. 
And all of that will happen uh, in a few years' time, in about 586 BC, where Judah is overthrown by the Babylonians and the people are taken into exile. And again, again, if you know just a little bit of your Bible, that's, that's where Daniel comes in as he talks about his experience of being faithful to God in that period of exile. Uh, but for all the hardness, uh, God is still merciful and God still has a plan for Judah. But as the terebinth and oak leave stumps when they're cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. You know, God will judge, but he does not completely destroy And so he sends his people into exile, but there will be a faithful remnant. But that remnant is going to be a long way from what he has declared about a kingdom that will last forever. But at least there is this tiny morsel of hope. And hope counts for a lot. And that hope will ultimately be fulfilled in Christ. It's hard to know uh, what part of this passage we need to hear the most. And of course, for each of us, it's it's perhaps different. Uh, For some, we need to recognise God's holiness and the seriousness of our sin. Uh, We need a lot more, woe is me, I am ruined because I'm a person of unclean lips. Uh, For others, it's perhaps completely the opposite. Uh, You need to hear your guilt is taken away, your sin is atoned for. And I suspect pretty much all of us need to hear, here I am, send me. You know, Isaiah has a particular role to proclaim God's word to Judah. In the New Testament, you know, we look at people like Paul or Timothy or even the 72 disciples who Jesus sends out to proclaim his word. And we look at those people and we think, you know, that's wonderful, but they're not me. You know, and God's given us all gifts. And thankfully, gosh darn, that's not one of mine. Uh, That's tempting to feel, uh, but it's not actually true. There is no doubt that God has gifted each of us differently. And some people do have a particular responsibility to proclaim Christ publicly. Uh, But we shouldn't use that as an excuse to feel that we have no role and no responsibility. Uh, I reckon, for me, uh, the most confronting uh, declaration of our responsibility is from the book of Luke, where Jesus says to another man, follow me. But he replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. And Jesus says to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. You know, in all of this, our job is not to save people. Uh, Our job as Christians is to present Christ faithfully. So we need to say the good things uh, that people want to hear. Uh, We need to say the hard things uh, that no one wants to hear. Uh, We don't want to talk about sin, uh, but sin is part of the story. Sin is part of the good news that there is a saviour. And for some, uh, they're going to hear us and they're going to hear our words like a fragrant aroma, to use the language of Paul. You know, for me, I'm thinking steak on barbecue. Okay, but for others, it will be the aroma of death. So thinking broadheads, summer afternoon. That's the two reactions to the gospel. Now, whatever that reaction is, it's not our job to choose and we can't control their response, but we can be faithful to God. And we do see the need, don't we? As we stand before God, as we recognise our own sin, 
as we're in awe of this picture of what it would be like to be accountable to God when we look at Isaiah, you know, we hope and pray that as we proclaim God's word, uh, that God will be merciful, uh, that he might open eyes so they will see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Let me pray that's true. Dear Lord, as we reflect on your word now, uh, we feel the weight of our sin. I pray we feel the weight of our sin, uh, that we might recognise that we are unworthy to stand before a holy God. And at the same time, Lord, help us to recognise your goodness and grace and love. And Lord, I pray as we see that, as we see your mercy to us, that we might proclaim that same mercy to others that you might save everyone around us in the same way that you have saved us. Lord, completely undeserved. But Lord, we pray for your grace. Amen.